Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So sit back and relax, or you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. When one comes up in an alternative community, you probably find out fairly quickly that there are people you look up to and people that you hope to never, ever run across in your experience. And joining the kink and leather and BDSM communities, that was clear from the outset. There were plenty of people who were up to no good. There were plenty of people who were roguish and had ulterior motives that maybe were not pure, not clean. I've said so many times as I tell stories, and if you've heard me talk about kink at all, you've probably heard me talk about By Johnson. She was the first African-American person who identified as a consensual slave uh, who I ever heard the name of and also was privileged to meet. And her place in my story is so vital, and I'm not alone. There are thousands of people over the decades that she has been active in the community that can look to her and say, here's why Mama Vi inspires me. She's just sort of the mom to a lot of people. Her partner, Jill Carter, is equally amazing. Um, She tends to be a little bit more reserved and a little bit more sort of in the background making shit happen. She um, and I share a common history in that we were both served as uh, international Ms. Leather. And I had not met Jill Carter in person up until very recently. Despesmeister and I had planned a road trip to a friend's wedding. And uh, because we're so extra, we decided to build into it uh, a road trip. Considering that there's COVID bouncing around, it was just so much safer to have our own home that we could keep clean ourselves and not have to deal with too many, too many people. So in that process, I said, you know, this is finally the chance to go and visit the Carter Johnson Leather Library because Vi Johnson and her partner, Jill Carter, are incredibly dedicated to preserving the history of the leather lifestyle. And there are very few people more qualified to do this because not only have they been involved in the kink and leather scenes since the 70s, They've been together since then. And so their story is so remarkable. I sat down with them towards the end of the visit and started to have a conversation with Vi. And then thankfully, Jill came back home after work. And so it's a little bit fragmented. I think it'll be at least two, maybe three episodes coming up here. But I wanted to frame this with how remarkable it is to feel as though you are at home. Jill and Vi are both older black women. 
I don't have a lot of older black women in my life. My grandmothers are dead. My aunts are dead. I have some cousins alive. But no one in that position, aside from my own mother, who, while she does step into the unconditional love thing, I discovered that someone saying that while they don't necessarily approve of your life choices, they love you anyway, is not as fulfilling to my soul as someone saying how proud they are of the work that you do in the leather community. And so to have that acknowledgement from someone like By Johnson and also from someone like Jill Carter, I don't even know. I don't have good words for it. I, I, I can't tell you how I walked out of that home feeling so full and so aglow. I can't tell you what it's like to walk into a house that is filled with leather, memorabilia, covers from famous masters, posters from contests of years gone by, and then to also see weathered photos of ancestors, folks who have passed on, who all are African-American. To be in a Black household, to see the Kentic cloth draped, to see the little tiny Afro puff black angels everywhere. And if you have a black mama or a black grandma or a black auntie, you know what I'm talking about. There's no household in America that does not have at least three of these. And so to have that cheek by jowl with the aspects of my history that are rejected by my own family is so healing and so powerful. And so I invite you to come and listen to uh, the first part of this interview. Mm. <laughs> okay, here's my level. And here's me? mine. Great. Now we are looking very similar. Of course, Yay! yours is like all the way up, though, which is so funny. I think yours is, yeah, yours is all the way up. And I don't um, want to interrupt while you're drinking coffee. I'll do a whole little intro thing and blah, blah, whatever. Or you could just tell people I'm having a mouthgasm. <laughs> Those who know me will understand. There's espresso involved. When you are in the presence of the living legend, living history, and all of that shit, you need to pay the proper respect. So I bring my owner and his espresso machine so that we may properly celebrate mama Vi with a freshly pressed espresso <laughs> and it is so good <laughs> i have to say and i will tell you we are we're here visiting with mama Vi in the carter johnson household today yesterday we were at the carter johnson leather library here in indiana on our road trip and getting up this morning and being able to walk into the living room and seeing you and the spousemeister having a conversation, I just, I had to like just go and sit down and chill for a second because it really was a moment that reflected so much on my own journey in leather and kink that I thought would never be. The idea that I would be able to visit with you, with my owner, and just converse and have that connection and that joy for so many years i never ever thought a i would find my own way as a slave at all and b certainly never find an owner who would and this is going to sound hell arrogant but who would be worthy of what i am presenting them with and the bar that you set of humility and honor and respect 
is one that I have strived to attain for 25 years. And I'm just so grateful to be here in this moment and to be able to hold that space and say, these people who I have the deepest love for, this woman for whom I have the utmost respect, invites me into her home. And I am able to bring my life with me with the absolute untrammeled pride and joy of saying, look what we have accomplished. Look what we have done. And so I want to thank you for that because that was when it really landed for me. That was when it really landed for me. And I pulled back that moment of you telling me back in like 1999 that it was not that I was not a slave. It was that I needed the owner who saw who I was and what I was worth. And I found him and he found me. And to be able to come basically on a little pilgrimage and be like, thank you for giving me the hope to keep going until I found him because he very much needed me. And so what you have done for his life is remarkable. Oh, there are a thousand things I could say to you right now. 999 of them would not make sense to you because you are not yet sitting where I'm sitting. My mom was an amazing woman. Even now at this age, I still strive to be half the woman she was. I watched her with my friends and I always asked why. And she said, you find the best and the brightest and you love them, you nurture them. You teach them what you've got, you give them all you have, and then you turn them loose, knowing that they will change the world. You have no idea how much I watched, or how I watched you grow, or how I watched others talking about you or what it was like to come bouncing back to my mate and saying, I think we found, I think I found our love child. <laughs> uh, part of it was being able to see that I was no longer alone. And that's a place that I'm grateful to some extent you'll never know. But what I think and feel doesn't make sense unless you do know. Yeah. what it's like to be lonely in a crowd of four or five hundred people. Not because the people around you aren't your friends and your extended family, but because when you look around, no matter how much you love them and how much they love you, there's nobody there like you. Yes. There's nobody there who gets the cultural exchanges, gets the kinky hair, gets the laughter that is unique to women of color. Gets the freaking out when you get in the dungeon and you realize your feet are ashy. <laughs> that, <laughs> amongst many others, yes. Um, but to find others that I could turn into my mother for gave me a whole new understanding, mm. a whole new kind of pride and a whole new source of pride, but also 
the understanding of will there ever be someone who understands what I give? Will there ever be someone who is worthy to accept yes, strong enough to take yes, strong enough to hold yes, all that I am and all that I am. And in pushing you into the center of that circle so many years ago, and yes, it is something that Pulse and I still talk about. Really? <laughs> because he was by my side when I did that and encouraging me to do it. And to try to explain to you, you were not only ready to be in the circle, but you were actually ready to lead the circle, if you remember. And then going back and saying you had a smack in the head and then a long talk from Ganesh, I believe you said? Yeah. Oh, agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> Watching you struggle with that because we all do. Yeah. The day you realize that Senior has moved over and plopped your happy ass down in Senior's chair is an eye-opening, frightening, confidence-building, what-the-hell-just-happened-to-me moment from the other side. Watching that is what every parent or grandparent waits for. It's the time when your chest swells a little and you get a little sass and you walk and you look over <laughs> at somebody who's looking at you going, what the hell? And you go, that's my kid. Mm. Those of us who adore you that you will never know have all watched that growth in you. The only difference is I get to be a little bit closer to that growth. So closer. we watched. There is a reason my dress collar is on your altar. Part of that was to remind you that until the one comes along who is worthy to change it, just like I owed Jerry, the older slave who trained, helped to train me, until that color simply becomes part of your altar, you are tied to the community that looks up to you in ways you'll probably never know because most will never be able to find you to articulate what it is you did for them. And that's why Courtney meeting you was so important. Mm -hmm. She got to touch a woman she idolized. And part of it is just to understand you're real. And not just written words on Facebook and photos, you're real. And to be able to tell you in a few words everything you've done for her. And those times when those things come back and stand in front of you yes. and go, this is what you did for me are humbling moments. But all you are is the next in a very long line of women who have made the choice to serve.
from the heart, from the hands, from the soul, and from the gift that you are. Now you're in my shoes. Oh, fucking shoes. I'm especially grateful, and this is, of course, something I know that you have heard from many people, so my turn. The structure and concept of leather family is so vital and so critical, not just because it creates a structure and hierarchy, but because it mirrors and in some cases replaces and in other cases heals the structures that we were born into that don't serve us or support us. Yeah. And I remember when someone first when I first came into the scene, and of course, because I was black, someone was like, oh, do you know Mama Bai? I'm like, no, who's that? And then of course they're like, oh, well, you have to know Mama Bai and this and that. And this was mid nineties. So someone dug up some old chat log from some IRC thing. And then they had a link <laughs> to some other thing. And then someone eventually sent me a copy of one of your books. It was not to love to serve, to obey. It was another one. But I said to myself, you know what? This gives me the permission to step into what I'm just trying to fucking see if maybe I can do. Yeah, that's what I love the fact that you're just like, hoopsha, tampere, child of the blood, whip it out. And so it was so amazing for me to be like, oh my God, so one of like the most respected and established people in the scene that I'm trying to creep into is a fucking black woman. And this after I had not seen any black women in the first year that I was involved in the scene. There were two, look who it is. Yay. You're, you're being recorded. So I feel like I need to disclose. The other black woman just walked the in. The famous black lady pervert. Come here, baby. <laughs> Swing around and grab a chair. How are you? I'm glad you're here. We're glad we're here too. We were on the way out, but I, I got permission to stop and do this little podcast because we were going to do it yesterday, but then we went up chatting and going on and on. So now we have actually, in addition to Mama Vi, we have Jill Carter, who is the other famous black lady who gave me permission to come and be a pervert. Yeah, we were just talking about how miraculous it was for me at least to come in after the first year I was doing shit in San Francisco in the Bay Area, had met two other black people, both were dominant male top guys. And it took a while before I started seeing other submissive women, but knowing that Vi existed and seeing stories about you guys together and how high profile and open you were gave me so much guts. It really empowered me because it's so lonely to feel like you are the only one having these fantasies. You are the one who is shaming your very ancestors by jerking off to the thought of someone beating your ass while you're wearing a collar. You are the one who's going to like bring down your entire family line because you use the S word. <laughs> like it's, it was amazing. And everything I saw about you was not crazy, was not self-hating, was not damaged. And that was miraculous. Thank you. Yes, but I do understand that feeling when we first started our being perverts <laughs> uh, in college. And then quickly 
she was my boss, turned that around. There's more to it, but it, it turned around. <laughs> and what she asked me, because I'm a loner, and she said, what turned you on? And I said to her, being a pimp, that's what I want to be, a pimp. And she said, well, what would you do? I said, I train my stable to be able to endure anything. And she said, well, what does that mean? Try it had on me. No idea. No, I had no <laughs> whatsoever. Well, that was my fantasy, and, and it started with one day her boyfriend came and visited her, and he left five hundred dollars there. And she said to him, "That's too much," and she gave him back about three hundred dollars. And I came in from class, and I mean, she told me this, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> So I got a pimp stick. Actually, first night, now, so that we can keep this story straight, <laughs> he left me the money so that I could go and buy a new dress. We were supposed to go out to dinner, and I had exams. I didn't have time. Yeah. Now, Her Majesty here comes in. We were discussing X, Y, and Z. She smacked me, pocketed the money, and walked out. Nice. Now, background information you need to understand is I was her boss. Well, now she thought she was my boss. <laughs> to this day, and we have been together almost 49 years, I have no idea why I let it happen or why I didn't fire her on the spot or whatever. I let it happen. Was it my first scene? Yeah. yeah. Do I have a clue? It's been almost five decades. Who, how, and why? No. Not at all. No. And I started training her by doing kinky things in our little rooms, tying up, uh, pulling the nipples, the, just using my fantasy. <laughs> and of course, we thought, we going to hell. <laughs> Gasoline soaked drawers, yes. We are going to hell. We are too crazy MFs up in here. <laughs> all right? In the predominantly white dorm. Yeah. All right? Doing kinky things. But how do, how did we find other people? I mean, what's the Orleans people? There, there was this time that you decided that we were going to a little adult bookstore oh, yeah. in New Brunswick, New Jersey, that, by the way, is still there. Now, to put that in context, I already had my teaching license, which meant that I was bound by the moral clauses of a New Jersey teacher. There were moral clauses? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most teachers, <laughs> even to this day, have X amount of moral clauses that bind them. Every state is a little different. But because you're working with children, there are pretty strict things that go around there. Sure. So from Montclair, New Jersey to New Brunswick was about 40 miles. So we were far enough away that we probably wouldn't run into anyone. So into this ugly little gray building with the triple X's and the classic. In she marches first, I was on leash. To this day, I can tell you the color of the floor <laughs> and the color of the right-hand wall because the counter was about five foot up. 
and the entire wall was gunmetal gray. Into the back room, Her Majesty marches with me in tow, finds a village voice when it was still basically a rag. Yes. A screw magazine. Oh my God. And I can't remember the third one. We grabbed our newspapers, trophies, paid for them, left, came back, read them, found the ad for Orange Beagle. Right. Went to a meeting. The rest of it is a long and protracted chronicle you've already read. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Jack Jackson. Of course, again, we didn't know that there were other black people, people of color in the scene. And we met Jack Jackson, and when we walked in, he said, Come on, little sisters, you are home. You are home. Oh. All right, Jack. How do I describe this man whose voice is like, when Jack spoke, everyone listened, right? But I earned his respect as a dominant, and and that is a reflection of my training on my slave, not submissive slave. And she paid me homage. She honored me in the way that she conducted herself. And I'll tell you how much she honored this ambassador from Somalia. He came with a briefcase. And this was at the Hellfire. He came with a briefcase one night, opened the briefcase and said, I will offer you you can have a million dollars. That's what I got in this case right here for her. Now, if she had already given herself to me, lock, stock, and barrel, I owned her. I looked at the million dollars, and I, I, I looked at that, and I looked at her. And I thought to myself, somebody going to offer me a million dollars for her? I got gold. I'm not letting go of her. I got gold. I turned down a million dollars. And I remember her look. And I said to her, you know I can sell you. And she said, yes. I believe there was a tear. And she thought I would do that. He tried one more time in our little apartment. And Jill said, go into the bedroom. When I came out, he was gone, and so was the briefcase. It was a different world back then. We had a mafia boss try the same thing. Absolutely. I I must say that I am probably one of the rarest in that I've never been a submissive. I'm not a submissive on enemy. I've tried every year for a couple years. I tried to switch places to understand more what she was going through mm-hmm. as, as a slave. And then one year she just said, "This, you just don't look right doing it. <laughs> <laughs> one day a year we would switch places. Yep. At the end of the day, she was more convinced than ever that I was going to leave her because oh. at the end of each day, she understood less and less. 
why do you do that no yeah, baby we're not wired the same love you mean it you will never understand this and she tried with all her heart she really did and it was just it wasn't even a swing and a miss in baseball terms, she just watched the ball go by. <laughs> Not even realize, you know, you're supposed to swing at that, right? <laughs> no clue whatsoever. Well, it's, she it, just it, didn't get Except it. for one, one thing that I did understand is bringing on her. All right, because there were times I'm not into pain either, not into receiving it necessarily. But when I did take the caning or the lashes. There was such, uh, I understand that feeling honored to have done it. That's about as much as I yeah. understood. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I also understood my responsibility as a mistress, which was one, you take care of your property, mm -hmm. which is why I respect what your master did for you, because that is what I said and bound myself to her. You're giving yourself to me is my responsibility to take care of you and to take care of your needs. One of the things that I also did with her was, and it took a while to condition, I'm not sure I really rinse her, hmm. but what I did say is no one has a right to abuse you, including me. And if ever you find yourself that I am abusing you, you have every right to stop me. I did not want to cross that line because I love her. And our love evolved to our partnership. And we said we were going to, she said, well, I want to grow old with you. When you're young, you're like, <laughs> All right, and that was my reaction. Okay, well, let's see how this goes. And one day I woke up and I said, damn it, we grew old together, didn't we? It's only been 48 years, six months. That's a long, that's a long time. That's a long, we've been together with each other than we've been longer than anyone else. Longer than anyone else, so. And for whatever this is worth, she was my first. And she I my first. fell in love with my first. And her pimp. <laughs> my honey. I fell in love with my I, honey. Please tell me that there's some pimp suit photograph somewhere. Please tell me. I can tell you some stories, though. <laughs> like walking into the pimp club. Just off 42nd Street. That was a long story. Long story. Boyfriend. Her Technically, my fiance, and they both had on capes, black velvet capes. I had a satin cape. We walk into the pimp club. I got him on leash. I walk him in. You should have seen those boys. I... And sat down and snapped fingers. I ain't talk. I didn't say a word, nothing. And I just watch and observe. They were watching and observing. And then uh, there was a code. Snapped my fingers a certain way. He held her. I smacked the shit out of her. Right there, <laughs> front of all of them. <laughs> Snapped my fingers and we walked out. No! 
<laughs> that was oh fun. <laughs> Remember I said there were a lot of things that weren't in the book? <laughs> yeah, were, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's why we need the fucking miniseries, yo. <laughs> we need an HBO, not HBO, we need Netflix. We need a Netflix series. Oh my god. I'm gonna write a fucking pin pitch for this because I need to see in full glory the pimp slap. <laughs> you do realize you'd be looking for a much younger version of me at this point, right? Oh yeah. We at forty second street, we would do some things. That's we before the mouse some... ate it, by yeah. the way. Well we could tell you some things that you couldn't do today. Could not do today. Got that right. Do you feel that is for better or for worse? We had fun, shit. <laughs> I know, we had fun doing it. You know? you know, everything evolves. And so that's what we're watching. Yes. The evolution of our community. Now, what I wrestle with is that we have evolved into the mainstream so much that you have predators and you have people who really don't have an understanding or clue of what this community is about. Nor do they want to. Right, and that has destroyed the love and the bond yeah. this community had. When we were underground, you had to look out for each other. Exactly. When we were underground, I'm going to go back to Jack. If you were involved in a scene, we didn't have dungeon masters because we policed our own. And I remember Jack, you know, first of all, it is artistic. When you see the scenes going on, people would stop and stare and learn and teach and ask questions afterwards. But there was such a respect that if you and we went on a stage. It was these like stages. Yeah. Now, if you were up there doing something that was harming someone, I've heard Jack bellow. Oh my Stop God! Right now, that was the worst thing you could ever happen have happen to you is to be called down. Yeah. And to be called down by the master, or to be thrown out, or to be thrown out. Because I was around when. Jack, Lenny Waller, Dave Vangan, and a lot of the other and men the of Hellfire had no problems throwing Domino out of the club, physically. You don't do that. That is not how you do that. You up to showboating instead of looking at what your techniques. Uh-uh. No, I could walk her into Hellfire. I could tie her to a pole and sit. Or walk away and no one touch her. And if they did, I did this. But Jill, no one would. I was safer naked at Hellfire than I would have been in the 19th Precinct, which wasn't that far away. I knew at the club nobody would harm me. It wasn't even a thought. Because to harm a slave or your slave, you didn't want to get called down like that. And if you were stupid enough young enough or inexperienced enough, you didn't piss off the masters of the club. You didn't piss off the old experienced one. I remember one incident, master was being very cavalier with a young lady he had tied to an overhead pipe. 
she was on ballerina pumps and tied. She had no way to stop someone mm -hmm. who might mm -hmm. accidentally jostle her. Jack sat her down, went and got him. We were told to attend to her. The guys picked this man up and threw him up the steps of Hellfire and out of the club. And that's some going because those are stone steps. Mm. Safe, it was never an issue. We didn't need, not fair. Because we were so small, we took care of each other. Do I miss those days? Yes, yeah. but the standard we existed by doesn't exist anymore. Things in evolve. Of, in terms of that, but what is poignant to me is that there's this idea now that you don't have the right to interfere, right? That, that you need to let people do their own thing and have their own journey. And it is so heartening to me, I would 100% be completely fine with small little fiefdoms, right, that are overseen by the benevolent dictator. This is the model that still exists in these little pockets around the country. Yeah. My, my last dominant was this sort of benign dictator in his own little fiefdom, and you know what? Exactly this, if he saw some shit going down, it was over, it was up to him. The whole DM thing, again, was not about policing, it was about you let him know if there's a fucking problem. Absolutely. And so that sort of, I'm so actually really glad to hear you tell these stories because what this means is those folks who are quietly going about their business of creating pretty much exactly what you're talking about are just going back to our own roots of where we came from and how that shit yeah. was held down. So I think it's very important and I'm so appreciative of you sharing this to send, to say to these folks, you're doing good. Not you're some arrogant bitch ass fucking around trying to act like there's some old guard. It's not about acting like there's some old guard. It is about acting like you care about the folks who are at risk in those moments and your priority is them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there were unwritten rules, protocols. Again, we call it safe, sane, central. You knew that. Yeah. You didn't touch someone else's property. You didn't hurt somebody else's property. You didn't get high and do drugs and then go and try to do a scene. Yeah. You're my responsibility, I'll speak for me, and for the group that was around, was in the moment, you need to be focused. You need to be present, <laughs> mind, sight, hearing. You know, you need to know that the hands are going cold. Mm -hmm. That's the technique I learned. Mm -hmm. If you got them, you know, it didn't stop the scene. I would just touch Adjust the body yeah. and feel a new, or you could sense that something needed to be adjusted. Mm -hmm. My job was to let them fly without a net and to be there to catch them. No. That was my responsibility. I understand what Mo is saying because the techniques, the play have evolved so much. What I don't understand, yes, I understand everyone is on a separate journey, I get it. I also understand the behavior is different, but you know distress when you see it and not distress that's cathartic as in, I'm taking someone and we are going to break through this wall, we have to. 
And if I'm watching that play and I'm not sure, I'm going to go check with somebody else, but I'm also going to sit there and watch it until the scene's over. But when you see that distress, if that is my family, I have an obligation to keep my family safe. And I watched scenes that I thought questionable, one of which I stopped. I got a whole lot of grief from the dominant the next day while the slave in danger was going, thank you so much, I was choking. And he wouldn't stop the scene. Excuse me, I did. And if I'm wrong, I'll take the hit for that. No harm, no foul. I'm more than willing to apologize. But if I'm watching somebody turning blue and you're not watching, if you're looking at them and you're watching this, you have a connection. The two of you are going somewhere together. If you put them in a situation of danger, they're turning blue and you've walked out of the room, I'm going to stop that scene. I'll take the hit I'm just, I'm later. Like, I'm out of the room and a thing with the, you know, and it's, it's, it's so fascinating because the one, one of my most teachable moment scenes was a scene, very long story. It was like a race play scene. It was a whole thing. It had been established, but the dominant who was running the scene had added an interrogation layer to the scene, which was not part of the negotiation. I'd never done an interrogation scene. I was unaware of the fact that. Um, this is one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> Did you over here licking your chops? She was all like, eh, 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 eh. and then what happened? <laughs> yeah, I over here this one. I, I, so, I, I, it, 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 well, it went from a runaway slave who's now being disciplined scene to a runaway slave who's witnessed a barn being burned down, and you're going to tell me who burned this fucking barn down. The thing is that the quote-unquote safe word was me giving him the information. I didn't know it. I didn't know the information because his slave had said something crazy to me at the cheese table. <laughs> And that was supposed to be the fucking safe word, right? But I was like, I don't know who she's talking about. I don't know anything about a fire. The scene then starts, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Three hours later, I'm dissociated because that was my mind's reaction to two and a half hours of interrogation was complete dissociation, and I had never had that experience. My experience in retrospect was, it was like things started blinking in and out, and I had jumps. So I remember being on the table, being punched. And then I remember being up against a cross, being hit. And then I remember, but then I didn't remember how I got from these places to these other mm -hmm. places. And then by the time the scene ended, and he's like, okay, aftercare time. This is when I learned that for some scenes, you need to have someone else to do the physical aftercare because I tried, I took a swing at this guy. I was like, do not fucking touch me. Understood. And he should have known that. Yeah, well, exactly. He should have known that. The rest of the people in my family should have known that. And the issue was that afterwards, and this is where it started to collapse, and this is where the sort of new scene has a problem. The assumption was I should have safe worded if I was in trouble. And I said, how could I safe word when I was dissociative? I was convinced that this crowd of white people would stand here and watch me lynched. Yeah. Mm. I did not have an ally. Who would I have cried to help to? And so the discussion of you are now a dangerous bottom because you cannot control your scene, this is the contemporary scene's attitude. Not everyone, but at least half of the discussion was about why I had not safe-worded. And then people started saying, yeah, you did seem a little bit out of it. Yeah, you didn't really, yeah, no one could make eye contact with you. And I said, and no one thought to check in. Right. And the DM said, well, I did check in with the, with the top, but he said everything was fine. 
He later then said, oh, well, yeah, I did kind of try to make eye contact with you, but you seem kind of out of it. And I'm like, at what point and did that you didn't yeah, tell him something? That, that, wasn't that a clue? If you, and so yeah, and, right? but the thing is that you had 50 people standing in a circle watching all of them concerned, but no one saying anything because, well, there's the DM. Well, she has a safe word. Well, he's a good player. And... Interestingly, the one person who finally stepped in at the end when I had crawled into a cage and refused to come out was a play partner of mine who was, I'm pretty sure, very far on the spectrum of sociopathy, this individual, and one of the most brilliant fucking sadists I've ever met. I think partially because of that. And he, because of the fact that if you're sociopathic, you have to take the clues from what you have learned and so you're not relying on anything except your own knowledge of the behavior of humans right. who are neurotypical. Right. And so he was like, this is not the Mo I have kicked the shit out of. Let me go over and deal with her. And he literally just like held me down on the ground and laid on top of my body for 10 minutes. And that snapped me back into, okay, I'm here, I exist. But what's so fascinating to me is that I put that scene in the context of the world that you are describing, and it would not have gotten to that point because he would have been trained to not rely on a fucking safe word. Right. That wouldn't have been a thing. Yeah, absolutely, there weren't safe words. And I teach people this all the time. Like, you realize that safe words were just a little out for a role play scene, so you didn't fuck up the role play. That's all it was. It was just a tool for a, uh, an aspect of one type of scene. It was not the way you ran your play. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.